Hi, and thanks for downloading. I'm Ancient Blogger, and if you go to ancientblogger.com, you can find articles on ancient history I've written, as well as links to my YouTube channel, Facebook page, and all sorts of content. I'm also on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, so come and say hi. Most people who've read their Thucydides, and even those who haven't, are familiar with the Sicilian expedition, an infamous overseas campaign made by the Athenians between 415 and 413 BC, which ended in disaster. For Thucydides, it came to represent everything bad about what Athens had become. They were guided by greed, and the decision to go was made possible by a mob mentality in the democracy, which was way too easily swayed by individuals. To what extent can we fully trust Thucydides in his description of the Sicilian expedition, and how does he position it in terms of his own attitude to Athens? In this episode, I'm looking at the arguments which support a view that Thucydides changed what he reported and how he reported to align far more closely with his own bias. Indeed, it's even argued that the Thucydidean account is best described as a drama rather than a history. Before we start to look more specifically, let's reacquaint ourselves with an overview of the Sicilian expedition. In 415 BC, Athens voted to send a large force to support its allies on Sicily. Envoys from Segesta, a town on the west coast of Sicily, had appealed to Athens for help against Salinas, which was being backed by Syracuse. It was essentially a local issue, but with wider implications, in some ways a proxy war in Sicily. Athens agreed to support Segesta, and voted to send a force in a first assembly, and then enlarged this in a second assembly. Three generals were voted to share command, the youthful Alcibiades, who was very much for it. The reserved Nicias, a balance to Alcibiades, and hugely respected. The third general was Lamachus, an experienced soldier, and a possible mediator between the two. From the outset, things went badly, with an incident known as the desecration of the Herms occurring, and the finger being pointed at Alcibiades. When the force arrived at Regium in southern Italy, the locals wouldn't permit them to enter. Worse still, Segesta confessed to being able to offer far less financial support than it originally promised. Upon landing in Sicily, a ship arrived, recalling Alcibiades for trial. This left the reluctant Nicias and Lamachus in command. Alcibiades quite literally jumped ship and escaped to Sparta, where he stirred a case against Athens, suggesting that Sparta should support Syracuse and fortify Desilea a village to the north of Athens. At this time, Sparta and Athens were at peace, but Sparta did send Gylippus, a general, to Syracuse, along with a small force to help and support and advise on its defence. Athens started to lay siege to Syracuse via the standard Greek practice of the time, encirclement. This turned into something of a wall-building contest between the two sides. As Athens built a wall, Syracuse put a counter-wall, there were small battles, but neither could land a decisive blow. Soon the besiegers became the besieged. Athens sent more supplies and men to Sicily, yet the tide turned, and soon it was Athens on the retreat. A quick getaway was prevented by a full moon, which Nicias interpreted as telling them they should wait a month. It might have been tragic for the Athenians, but it does allow us to date the Nicene full moon to the 28th of August 413 BC. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, I have this and other eclipses in antiquity as an article on my website. A naval defeat in the Syracusan harbour left only a land retreat for the Athenians still left, and they were in a pitiful state. With no cavalry, they were picked off at will. Eventually, the Syracusan forces defeated them. 
Those captured were sent to quarries which acted as impromptu prisons. Few survived in the conditions, and the remaining Athenian generals, including Nicias, were executed. It's difficult to put an exact number of the men Athens lost. Thucydides wrote that at least 40,000 men took part in the final retreat, and here we meet a standard problem when dealing with troop size in antiquity. If it was 40,000 men, then it was likely only half of these were actual combatants. In either case, he later reports that at least 7,000 prisoners were taken. The costs in other areas were easily as significant. In a financial context, it drained valuable funds, and there was also the loss of prestige. Athens was reliant on its allies and those who had stayed loyal to it. With a trouncing defeat came whispers and thoughts of switching loyalties. Both Cicero and Livy refer to the Sicilian expedition. Cicero mentions it in Against Veres, where he places the pride and the glory of the Athenian power as a shipwreck in the Syracusan harbour. In Livy, Fabius Maximus speaks against invading Carthage and cites the Sicilian expedition as a warning. Yet Athens fought on for ten more years, so you could argue that it wasn't a disaster with a tangible, immediate effect, and I'll pick up on this at the end. But let's start with the hotspot of the entire affair, the two assemblies at Athens, which shaped the expedition. For some who've read Thucydides, you might be asking yourself, two assemblies? I, I don't remember there being two. And you can easily be forgiven. The first assembly appears in Book 6, Section 8, and even then you might blink and miss it. Thucydides reports that Athens voted in favour of sending 60 ships. They appointed the three generals, namely Alcibiades, Nicias and Lamachus. There were also three objectives given, and these were 1. To help Segesta against Salinas. 2. To restore Leontini, which had been attacked by Syracuse. 3. To make the sort of provisions for Sicily which might seem to them most in accordance with Athenian interests. To summarise, the First Assembly approved a small force of 60 ships with two clear objectives. Support Segesta in their conflict and restore Leontini. The third seems ambiguous, but bearing in mind that the delay in communicating anything back to Athens meant that the generals needed the freedom to improvise policy. I see this objective as allowing the generals some freedom if an opportunity came their way on a small scale. The one thing which is certainly not indicated in any way was that Athens wanted to conquer Sicily. It's clearly not stated as an objective, and given that objectives were debated in the First Assembly, it was neither either an option or one which was raised and dismissed, though I can't really imagine anyone suggesting they try and conquer Sicily with 60 ships. I think we can say it was never on the table. The reason I make this point is that from reading Thucydides, you'd think that the conquest of Sicily by Athens was either an established fact or something everyone had agreed upon. Book 6 starts with the curious Sicilian Antiquities, which recounts Sicily's history as well as some trivia. It sits just before the account of the Sicilian expedition and acts as a sort of introduction, though as I'll point out later, I think there was something else going on here. The opening line for the Sicilian Antiquities states that Athens sailed to Sicily, if possible, to conquer it. It's as subtle as a flying trireme, but to his credit, Thucydides employs more subtle techniques to reinforce this idea that Athens wanted to conquer Sicily. Rather than telling us directly, he uses the characters involved in the expedition, who either state it or think it. Take Nicias, for example. In the Second Assembly, he comments, even if we did conquer the Sicilians, whilst concluding that those voting for the expedition had set your hearts on the conquest of Sicily. The other general to speak in the Second Assembly was Alcibiades, and Thucydides informs us that Alcibiades is said to have wanted command of the expedition so he could conquer both Sicily and Carthage. Here is Thucydides' peek into the mind of Alcibiades, which in fairness must have been a hectic place at the best of times. 
It's not just Athenians who Thucydides has promoting his line of thinking. Later in Book 6, there is also a debate at Syracuse over what to do. Hermocrates takes the threat of invasion seriously. He points out that Athens has sent the force primarily to help their allies, but in reality it's because they want Sicily. This is an interesting development. The duplicity of Athens makes the whole affair seem even more sinister. Of course, it's possible to argue that Hermocrates wanted to make Athens seem as bad as he could, but as we'll see shortly, Thucydides uses the debate at Syracuse to really hammer his point home. After escaping to Sparta, Alcibiades ups the ante by voicing the real reasons for the expedition. He tells the Spartans that Athens not only wants to conquer Sicily, but also Carthage. Now, Sparta did send Gylippus to Syracuse as a result, but, but Gylippus was a low-level Spartan, a Mothax. But still, Gylippus uses a similar line to the Syracusan forces under his command, which included some Peloponnesians. Carthage is removed as the Athenian target, and Gylippus reminds his men that Athens will conquer the Peloponnese after Sicily. But Thucydides didn't just put this invention in the mouths of individuals. The people of Camarina on Sicily received delegations from both Syracuse and Athens. They find the Athenian delegation compelling, except in so far as they thought they might enslave Sicily. Back home in Athens, Thucydides tells us that the older men in the Second Assembly were thinking about conquest. In short, Thucydides was quite the mind reader. In my reading of the Thucydidean account, I noticed at least ten instances where Thucydides reinforces this view. It's something he does at the beginning, during the expedition, and even at the end. Book 8 starts with the reaction to the defeat, and how the people turned against those public speakers who advised they would conquer Sicily. Yet at no point is the conquest of Sicily made implicit in an official context. It's what Thucydides wants us to think. Even if it was a far-fetched option or possible outcome, there's nothing present in the text which can securely fasten this objective to the expedition. So why the continued implication by Thucydides that Athens was intent on conquering the island if there's no definitive proof of it, merely speculation placed in the minds and mouths of leading figures? If this is the case, what does it tell us about Thucydides? Well, I'm going to ask you to consider two situations and see what you think. In situation A, we have Athens aiming to send a force to assist its allies in Sicily. Whilst they aren't doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, it's strategically sound in keeping the island balanced politically in their interests. It's also important for them to be supporting their alliances at a time when they have been tested elsewhere in the Aegean. Now situation B... Again, we have Athens who decides that they want to conquer Sicily and have the fortune to have an ally on the island. They offer to assist it with the real purpose of conquering the island. Both situations result in the destruction of the sent force, but I'd wager you might have a different emotional response to each. With situation A, you might feel some pity for Athens, as well as curiosity as to what went wrong. The motive in sending the expedition doesn't sound unreasonable, and instead a critical eye might be directed more to the decision-making on campaign, which led to defeat, as opposed to focusing on the initial decision. Situation B may induce a very different response. Lack of pity, certainly, perhaps almost a karmic tut in the back of your mind. The focus here will be drawn onto the morality of sending the expedition, and thus the decision to send it in the first place. Its failure sits within a cause-and-effect model, with the blame more weighted to the idea to send it in the first place. By shifting the expedition more in line with B, Thucydides attempts to keep his reader more attentive to the idea that Athens had committed something hubristic, and the decision in the first instance was just woeful. 
True, there were mistakes made during the expedition, but Thucydides directs us to the reason that the real problem was the idea of it in the first place, and how it got approval. The mistakes on campaign didn't sit in isolation from the original decision to go with a much larger force, yet it's fair to say there were certainly serious ones made, which often have Nicias close to them. Despite these failings of Nicias, Thucydides isn't exactly damning of him by any means. Indeed, he writes a nice eulogy of Nicias. What seems to be happening is Thucydides shifting the blame of the expedition away from the decisions made on campaign, not completely I should add, but lessening their traction. This allows the blame to be seen more clearly at the beginning of the expedition, with the events of the two assemblies. I talk about assigning blame a lot, but who is Thucydides blaming exactly? Well, the decision to go was made possible through the political structure Athens had at the time, namely a democracy. But this might be too vague. How do you blame an entire system? In particular, one which had Pericles at its head, who Thucydides treats with respect and admiration. It would seem that Thucydides had an issue not with democracy itself, though he wasn't fond of it. His ire in this instance is with a group of people who voted in the assemblies, the mob. To quote Donald Kagan on Thucydides in his book on the Peloponnesian War, it was the mob who decided to attack Sicily and add it to the Athenian Empire so that the people could profit from the spoils. The Athenian voters, or the mob, are made indirectly culpable by Thucydides for the expedition. He can't resist the odd pop at them. As we have seen earlier, he's able to comment on their shared mindset in wanting Sicily conquered. However, he isn't just able to put thoughts in their minds. In Syracuse, he puts words in their mouths. The debate at Syracuse over the response to the expedition is a masterly example of how Thucydides sets his argument through subtle nuances and direct words. It allows him the freedom to be well, perhaps more critical of the democracy at Athens, without over-egging the pudding. It allows the political debate about the expedition to be set overseas, which makes his account more informed, and gives the narrative more balance, as without it you'd have the political discourses only occurring in Greece. Two main characters are introduced into the debate at Syracuse. There is Hermocrates, who Thucydides quickly comments knew what the real facts were, and opposing him, the leader of the democratic faction, called Athenagoras. Whether it's pure coincidence that the leader of a democratic faction is called Athenagoras, I cannot say, but we can certainly agree that Thucydides doesn't rate him much. Where Hermocrates gets a nice lift from Thucydides' kind words, Athenagoras is introduced with a comment on how he had a great influence with the people. When I read this, I didn't think much of it, until a footnote in my copy of Thucydides pointed out that this was how Thucydides introduced Cleon in Book 3. For those who don't know much about Cleon, he was an infamous demagogue whose influence over the assemblies in Athens was criticised by both Thucydides and lampooned by the comic Aristophanes. In short, he's not held in high regard. He represented a key criticism of democracy, that it can be manipulated by individuals. Hermocrates is up first in the debate and sets his points out rationally. His concern is that Athens has come to conquer Sicily under the pretense of helping its allies. And this is a new variant of the Athens is out to conquer Sicily theme, which I spoke about earlier. If anything, it's even worse. The idea that Athens would act this way is quite pernicious, and I wonder whether it was safer to have this reportedly spoken openly in the debate away from Athens. Athenagoras is contrasted in every way. His argument is emotive and includes personal attacks. The idea of Athens coming to Sicily is folly. Not only that, it's irresponsible and this fear-mongering might be in order for the non-democratic elements there to seize power. I mentioned earlier that Thucydides is quite brilliant in this debate. Firstly, you have a leader of a democratic faction, 
Athenagoras, telling everyone that Athens isn't coming. This is clearly untrue, and Athenagoras's error is compounded by his later defence of democracy, tacked on to the end of the speech, where he explains how criticisms of democracy for being unintelligent is simply incorrect. Now turn the irony up to 11, where we realise that Athenagoras's error was a result of another democracy. He stated that democracy isn't unintelligent straight after making an incorrect reading of the actions of another democracy. Secondly, Athenagoras details why it would be stupid for Athens, and thus a democracy, to send forces to Sicily. So you have one representative of democracy defending allegations that their political system is stupid, based on an incorrect prediction of what another democracy would do. And the reason that he is wrong is because he thinks that the other democracy wouldn't be so stupid as to make the decision they have made. And we all need to sit down after that. The placement of the debate at Syracuse allows Thucydides to keep the pulse of his criticism at a steady beat. The reader is reminded Athens is still really about conquering Sicily, and the decision wasn't a wise one. Bonus points are also there for representing the democratic faction in such a manner. Of course, there's that linked Cleon, a person famed for his demagoguery. As I said, whether Athenagoras existed or not can be debated. I'm more convinced that here Thucydides accentuates the situation rather than create one. Doubtless, there would have been a debate at Syracuse over the reports that Athens was sending a force to help its allies there. For us, the importance is of those themes Thucydides is able to bring to the fore, and through a pseudo-demagogue who is misinformed about a situation in the form of Athenagoras. It's that specific criticism of a mob being misled. And of course, Thucydides sets his average Athenian in the assembly as exactly that, someone with a bit of knowledge, but not a great deal. Someone easily swayed by an appeal to their hearts and not their minds. In Thucydides' Ignorant Athenians and the Drama of the Sicilian Expedition, David Smith argues convincingly that the notion of ignorance was crucial in setting up the expedition for a disastrous outcome. I mentioned earlier the curious section in Thucydides called Sicilian Antiquities. Smith points out, as this was an example of Thucydides fogging the reader with half-truths and inconsistencies, Amidst this argument, Smith quotes Connor, who wrote that the narrative in Book 6 on Sicily is there to produce in them, the reader, that same false sense of knowledge about Sicily, so that they emphatically undergo the same sense of confusion and upheaval during the subsequent course of events as did the Athenians. This is quite something. Smith is arguing that Thucydides is placing the reader in the role of the average Athenian of the assembly by virtue of feeding them half-truths and inviting them to involve themselves in the narrative as you might do when reading a story or a play. Thucydides' Sicilian expedition as a tragedy isn't a new or unheard of angle. Other historians have noted this and made similar comment, but it's quite a striking reveal nonetheless, as Thucydides prided himself in objectivity, and here we see him abandon his principles in order to make a wider political comment. To counter the idea of an ignorant Athenian populace, albeit an ignorant Athenian assembly, we'd need to understand that this wasn't the case, and that Sicily was well known to the Athenians. Well, the Sicilian expedition, which this episode focuses on, wasn't the first. In 427 BC, Athens sent 20 ships to Sicily, with 40 later following. Thucydides reports of her campaign lasting three years with numerous battles fought. The result was a number of treaties being signed, and it was, by all accounts, a success, perhaps too much of a success, as three generals were prosecuted for accepting bribes, possibly because it was felt even more could have been achieved. 
The point being is that the notion of Sicily as a largely unknown quantity doesn't really fit. We should ask ourselves if the Athenians knew about Sicily and still voted to go, then, then why did they do so? If you consider the first assembly, which had defined objectives and a small force, there seems little reason not to. Athens had enjoyed a peace with Sparta, who were not keen on war any time soon. In the meantime, they had allies to support, which is a defining feature of any empire. The treaty with Suggesta is argued by Smith to date from around 418 BC. In short, it would be negligent not to support, and the fear would have been that other allies of Athens might decide to rethink their loyalty if it was unable to provide some support to Suggesta. There was also the issue of finance. Suggesta had offered to contribute financially to the expedition, and Athens had no real reason to expect that it wouldn't be able to pay or help fund any activities undertaken there. Prior to the assemblies, Athens sent a delegation to Suggesta, which looked to ensure that this was the case. I also imagine they had other duties to attend as part of this as well. This deputation forms one of the most famous incidents in Thucydides, and perhaps antiquity. It contains the themes of Athens again being ignorant to a situation and its greed. Thucydides relishes this, though as I'll argue, it may not be as fanciful as he reports. Thucydides writes how the Athenian deputation and even the crews are hosted in Suggesta with golden cups, and luxury as well, which leads the Athenians to believe the reported wealth of Suggesta. What they don't know is it's a ruse, and Suggesta has used all of its resources in supplying anyone hosting the Athenians with gold and silver implements. It's a fantastic story, which, as Lisa Callet in her piece titled Money and the Corrosion of Power and Thucydides points out, mirrors the fate of Polycrates in Herodotus, where he is similarly duped by a pretense at wealth. Certainly, it's used by Thucydides to encapsulate everything about Athens and the expedition which is wrong. Themes of greed and the Athenians' basing fact on mere rumour chime heartily. In some ways, it's a paradox, as we can see Thucydides operating at its least subtle, when he's trying to be his most subtle with his story. This isn't to dismiss it out of hand, but deputations being hosted wasn't in any way unique, and to be hosted with a host looking to impress sat firmly how the Greeks expected a host to behave. What I argue Thucydides does is accentuate and build on something which happened, but twist it to suit the overarching criticism of the expedition, namely the greed of Athens and the way in which it was easily fooled. And here's a crucial part of it. The mention of a deputation to Suggesta is made at the beginning of the expedition, as I pointed out earlier, but the ruse and the story of the golden plates doesn't appear until it is revealed that the Suggestans don't have the money they said they did, which itself occurs when the Athenian force is about to land in Sicily. Why wasn't it featured at the outset? Why wait till the moment when Athens realises Suggesta doesn't have the funds it said it did? Lisa Callet sums it up very well. It's placed at the point of the discovery, because it's far more effective as a dramatic device. It gives emotional clout to the event. A historian might have placed this reveal chronologically, thus it would have occurred before the assemblies, but as it's argued, the expedition was painted as a drama. You might also note that even though the Athenians were informed of the new financial situation, they pressed on, so perhaps the money wasn't that important after all. In this instance, Thucydides has altered the narrative purely to furnish the account with more drama. As you might imagine, this isn't the only way he enjoys reframing events to fit his worldview. We need to go back to the two assemblies held when it was decided to send the expedition. If anything, these are crucial for Thucydides, as for him, they are where the mistakes were made. The first assembly, as we've discussed, was largely glossed over. The second, 
gives Thucydides much of what he needs. It's certainly where he's able to attach the notion of a wide-scale invasion following the decision in the Second Assembly to increase the size of the force being sent. It's also where Thucydides places the conquering of Sicily in the minds and mouths of the key players. These, Nicias, must go down as the worst, or best, depending on how you see it, poker players in history. Nicias opposed the expedition. We're not sure why, it could be a mixture of reasons. He would have been around 55, so perhaps an overseas tour wasn't something he fancied much. There's also the fate of the commanders in the previous expedition there. Despite it being largely successful, two of the returning generals had been banished, and a third fined. In any case, Nicias had been voted as a general and couldn't back down. The only way he could get out of it was to have the expedition itself cancelled. There was always one option left to him. Pausanias tells us that Meton, an Athenian, voted as an officer, feigned insanity rather than go, and he really committed to this by burning his house down. Presumably, Nicias is a bit more sensible, and he tries to get the expedition cancelled. In the second assembly, this takes the form of a bluff. As the first assembly had given the objectives for the expedition, Nicias had no way of appealing against it in the context of it being a bad idea. Perhaps he had spoken or used this argument. In the Second Assembly, he appealed to the Athenians in the context of cost. The expedition would require a much larger force in order to satisfy the objectives issued by the first. Nicias was challenged on this and asked to give an estimated size of the force needed. Seemingly, he conjured up a force large enough to put the Athenians off, which it didn't. And then they proceeded to vote for this larger force. What was originally 60 ships became 100 and 5,000 hoplites, as well as a large force of light-armed troops. Nicias had form when it came to ill-advised bluffs. In 425 BC, he called the bluff of Cleon, who take him up on his challenge to capture the Spartans of Pylos, and went on to do just that. Here, his failed bluff had repositioned him as an advocate for the expedition. Nicias wasn't really against it, he wanted to make it bigger. And this was a much worse situation for him to be in. The larger size of the force made it possible for Thucydides to imply that all of Sicily was to be conquered. The result of Nicias' bluff might have been bad for him, but they were disastrous for the expedition. The objectives had stayed the same, but now had a much larger force to undertake them with. This might seem odd, and what general doesn't want more troops? But this avoids the issue of logistics. Donald Kagan sums it up very well. Against his intentions, Nicias managed in the Second Assembly to convert an expedition of moderate size with limited goals and liability into a vast armada with great ambitions and expectations, whose failure could only be a disaster. In many ways, the Assembly was responsible for the failure of their expedition, but perhaps not for the reasons Thucydides presents. It's unlikely Athens was seduced naively into a campaign there, as we can see Athens had been successful in Sicily some ten years before. They understood Sicily and the political landscape there. Indeed, they had only recently signed a treaty with Sicester. Their allies in Sicily were important enough to defend and needed to demonstrate their, to their other allies that they could be relied upon. Where things go wrong is the decision to increase the force, so that by the time the Athenians land, they don't have a set of objectives which align with their troop numbers. Added to this, a lack of clear leadership. The only real advocate for the expedition is Alcibiades, and he leaves Sicily before anything really happens. Nicias repeatedly asks to leave, but is not allowed. Lack of clarity allowed Syracuse to organise itself, and with the help of Gylippus, they reverse the situation. 
key mistakes on campaign result in an awkward mess being made far, far worse. In amongst this, Thucydides ignores these, or at least glosses over the mistakes. In order for the initial decision to be seen so crucially poor, he needs to try and make those key strategic errors on campaign seem less important. I'm torn between whether Thucydides generally believed that the expedition failed because of the reasons he gives, or whether he just uses the event to illustrate what he really disliked about Athens. After all, he does include the mistakes made on campaign, and surely, if he wanted to, he could have omitted them completely. But then there are very often dramatic points which heighten the tension. The full moon which prevents the Athenians from retreating ramps things up. The fact that Syracuse was in the verge of surrender, and seemingly saved at last minute by Gylippus, which is technically a failure on the part of Nicias, who could have prevented his landing, twists and turns abound. And we circle back to the arguments that this is a great story. Thucydides has his account set within a dramatic framework, and it's quite splendid for it. I suppose this is the closest I can come to a conclusion or summing up. You could cut the Sicilian expedition from Thucydides, and it would stand alone, and though it refers to events elsewhere, you could still understand it well enough to exist as a story. The Sicilian expedition had wide-ranging implications for Athens. It was a disaster. And at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned how this needs to be understood within a seeming contradiction whereby Athens continued to fight on for another 10 years or so. The key word here is immediacy. It set up Athens to fight from an incredibly difficult starting position. The expedition had brought back into conflict with Sparta, not through anything on Sicily. Argos, the old enemy of Sparta, had supported Athens, and when Athens supported it against their old foe, it gave the Spartans a reason to put the gloves back on. The result of the expedition was a loss in terms of men, prestige and money. Oh, and Athens now had a war in its hands. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. If you're doing so via iTunes, a rating would really help me out, though obviously only if you think I've earned it. If you want to get in touch with me, at Ancient Blogger on Twitter, and my website is www.ancientblogger.com. Till the next time, stay safe and keep well. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!